Hello, and welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I'm Pastor Greg Miller, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit NHF Church and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. So this book, it's an epistle is what it's called, and it's really one of the most direct letters that Paul will write. And in fact, it's one of the most practical guidelines for living in Scripture. James is one of my favorite books. It's a little past Ephesians because it's very blunt and it's very to the point of this is what you should be doing, this is what you shouldn't be doing. And Ephesians is like that in ways, but it's very practical and nuanced as Paul is known to do. And so before we kind of dive into Ephesians 1, we have a ton to cover and we'll see if I get it covered all or we just pause and say, well, wait till next week. But in Ephesians 1, if you're there in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're new to Scripture, you're probably like, okay, Paul, who and who is this guy? And the other part is, what in the world is an apostle? And you think about that, what is an apostle? And Paul is not who maybe you think he is. Whenever you read a letter, you read a book, you kind of want to know a little background that's what I like to know. Who is this person? When I read history, I always want to know, who is the author of this history book? Where did they get their education? Who's writing the forewords? Because that will tell me just a little bit of what I'm about to read and kind of their slant, their viewpoint of what I'm going to read. Am I maybe going to agree with it? Am I maybe not going to agree with it? And even if I don't agree with it, I have an understanding, a good expectation going in of where it might go off. And so if you're new to Scripture, maybe don't know Paul, you weren't raised in the church, we need to look at this guy, Paul, before we really go any further, because once we know a little bit about him and his background and his testimony, the next part becomes all the more sweeter as we read it and understand his vantage point. And so if you put your finger in Ephesians and you jump with me to the left, it's the fourth book of the New Testament called Acts. And I'm always careful to say well, I won't preach on Acts for a few years because things happen when you preach in Acts, for my opinion. One of the churches that I watched, North Coast, they, they started a series in Acts in January 2020. What happened in 2020? COVID. I'm like, dude, I'm just saying. Stuff happens. But it, Acts really gives an understanding and a play-by-play of what happened post-Jesus' resurrection, what was the church like? What was these disciples doing? What happened? And so in Acts chapter 9, you kind of read about this, and you read a little bit about what happened and who this guy named Saul. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem and so if we pause there, they're kind of like, oh, what, what are you, where did you jump to, Nick? What in the world's going on? Who are the people of the way? Who is the Saul character? And if you were to read a little bit before this part, you would read in Acts this backdrop that as the disciples waited, as Jesus rose, they waited in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit arrived. And when he arrived, Peter was there, and he was in Solomon's portico, which would have been the Temple Mount. And if you were there back in the day, it could seat multiple thousands. It was like tiered seating in a sense, like you go up steps, but could hold thousands could be there. 
And at the base of that, there would have been different basins to wash in, part of the Jewish culture. And when you went to temples, you purified yourself. And so there was lots of basins at the bottom that when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were residing there and Peter started proclaiming God and thousands got saved, it's how did that happen? How did they baptize so many people back in the day at that time? There was lots of water basins. And so people started coming to faith and there started to be this conflict between Jewish belief and then this new way. They didn't have a name for it yet. They just called it the way, which reference they so followed and so closely associated with Jesus and his teachings and how he lived that they called him, they had no other word. They're followers of that way, that way. And so at a key point, the church kind of disciples and apostles said, we've got to figure out this whole leadership structure. And some deacons were formed and a guy named Stephen was designated as a deacon. And as he was ministering in the city of Jerusalem, they came at them and they arrested him. And they put him on a false trial. And when they put him on a false trial, he kind of gave his defense and he looked at the history side of it and said, look, from the dawn of time, here was our forefathers. Here's how it is. And he made a perfect play all the way to Jesus said, you killed him. And when he got that, he said he had a vision from heaven as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the day. He said, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand. And they said, blasphemy. And they took him out and they stoned him. And they stoned him at the feet of a man named Saul. And Saul as they laid his, their cloaks down in front of Saul to not get blood splatter on him, they then picked up rocks and stoned Stephen to death. And Saul approved of it. And this Saul character is kind of a young, up-and-coming Sanhedrin religious ruler of the day. He's been trained by a guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was known in the Sanhedrin. He was one of the most well-respected men. Saul was kind of his understudy, going to take his place at some point. Saul had the greatest mind. He was brilliant. He knew the law inside and out. He probably would have memorized most of the Old Testament. And he would have seen earlier than Stephen's trial where they brought in Peter and some of the disciples because they were healing on the Sabbath. And they would have seen the fight. And Gamaliel gave the best advice to the Sanhedrin. He said, listen, if this, what they're doing, is really of God, we can't stop it. We're not going to be able to. But if it's of men, it'll fizzle out. So beat them and let's be on our way. And so they left it alone. They beat them, and they went out rejoicing that they were beat in the name of Jesus. And then it trans fast forward to Stephen. Saul approves. And then it says in chapter, right in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. And then to where I was in chapter 9, Saul still breathing threats and murder. So for two chapters, this Saul character is beating Christians. He's finding them. He's ripping them out of their homes. He's putting them in jail. And then he says, I want letters to go north to a different town and Damascus, and I want to arrest everyone who I can find who are followers of this way. And he gets those letters, and he goes on his traveling journey. And on his way, he's met with a bright light that kind of throws him off his horse. And the guys that are with him see the light. They're kind of thrown off. But Saul hears a voice, and it says this in verse 4, and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So he's on his way to go take out more Christians, to take out these followers of this unique way that's coming that's at odds with Judaism because it says the Messiah has come 
no, he hasn't in one viewpoint, and yes, he has in the other, and they're saying, no, we don't want this. We're going to take out all these people. He's met with a bright light. He's blinded by this light, and in the midst of that, there's a guy named Ananias who is in this town, and as he goes into town, there was a disciple in verse 10 of chapter 9. There was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. The Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So you have the story playing out of after the resurrection of Jesus' disciples wait. The Holy Spirit comes, many are baptized. Disciples face persecution. The Sanhedrin can't figure out one way or the other. The advice in the council is beat them and be on with it. If it's God's thing, it'll keep going. If it's man, it'll disappear. It continues to grow. They don't really listen to advice. They arrest a man named Stephen. They stone him. And then a world, pretty much the whole area's persecution breaks out. The main culprit behind it all, Saul is the ringleader. Saul is going from place to place. Saul finally goes up to Damascus, and on the way, he's blinded. His reputation precedes him. Everyone knows this man. He's the killer of Christians. He's the one who arrests you. Steer clear discernment, wisdom that we're giving says he's a bad guy. Don't go around him. Don't let him in. And he's blinded and he goes, and as he's praying to God, unsure of what in the world just happened to me, he sees in a vision a guy named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him. And Ananias, I love his just honesty, which is the thing where God wants with most of us. I'm here, Lord. Okay, I want you to go to this house, to this guy. Wait, whoa, whoa, God, you know who that is, right? You know what he does, right? If I go in saying I'm a Christian, he's going to arrest me right then and there. And God says, look, he's chosen to carry my name to the Gentiles and kings and of Israel, children of Israel, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. If I'm in a nice, I mean, oh, he's going to suffer? I like this. I'm in it because he's hurt me. He's wronged my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And so he goes and he lays hands. And in verse 19, near the end of chapter 9, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. After this, is, he's been healed, his eyes Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. So this guy who kills Christians now goes into the same synagogues that he was ravaging and taking out the Christians to say, Jesus is it. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Guy's brilliant. Luther, one of the, during the Reformation period, was brilliant. He knew the law code. You and I, as we live in the world, there's a certain set of rules, per se, in culture and right and wrongs. And if you get in trouble with the law, the game changes. Don't know if you've ever dealt with the law in that way or ever been arrested or put in jail, but the truth is the game changes. And for you and I who live in the world who don't really necessarily deal with that side of life, with the law, we tend to think the rules that here are the same rules over here. And that's not true. 
The law kind of works a different way. The game's a little bit different. And Paul, Saul, excuse me, knows all of the law of the Old Testament and says in all of this, I know how it all fits together. And let me show you in layman's terms how this fits. And they can't stand up to his arguments. And it gets to the point where basically they got to ship him out because he has to leave. It said, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now they're looking to kill Saul because they can't fight him. They can't argue with him. They can't get their point across. How many people get into that part where I can't win, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to die on this hill, I'm just going to be stubborn about it, and I'm just, since I can't get my way, I'm just going to punch you, right? But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates the day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, let him down through the opening of the wall, and he escaped, and he goes back to Jerusalem, where he's not accepted either, because he's the guy who kills Christians, And when he's proving the point of Jesus, he faced threats on his life. And instead of engaging with them, he snuck out of the town, goes back to Jerusalem where the disciples are like, do you know who this is? We're not, and no one wants to talk to him. No one wants to bring him in until a guy by the name of Barnabas, an encourager is what his name means, vouches for him. And Saul spends some time away from Jerusalem kind of studying Verse 27, but Barnabas of chapter 9 took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoken to him and how on Damascus he had preached boldly Jesus. So he went in and out among Jerusalem preaching in the name of the Lord. Barnabas stood up for him. Barnabas vouched for him, said, I see the change in him. I'm willing to take the risk on him and vouch for him. And over a period of time, Saul is commissioned by the church, he's recognized, and his name changes from Saul to Paul. And this man who was a murderer and had taken the life of Christians and putting them in prison is someone who then is all for Jesus and his life completely changes. In fact, when you jump ahead, if we jump ahead in our story just a little bit in Acts chapter 16 and 17, you read about the story. But in Acts 18, if we camp there for just a minute, it says, after this, Paul left Athens And he went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native Pontius, who recently come from Italy. And there's this story that you'll have to read on your own because we don't have the time to go into all of this. There's a church plant. Priscilla and Aquila are known. And after that period of time, it says in verse 18 of chapter 18, Paul stayed many days longer and took off, took leave to the brothers and set sail to Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Serenchine. And he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he travels with Priscilla and Aquila after a church plant in, in Corinth. They go to, where, to Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, and he reasons with the Jews because that's what Paul did. He went to the Jews first, the synagogue, who has the Old Testament. And at some point, he would finally just shake the dust from his feet and go deal with those who believed in the Gentiles. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. Paul leaves Ephesus. There's no church plant yet. Priscilla and Aquila are still there. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia and strengthening all the disciples. He's traveling. He's a missionary is what Paul is at this point. Priscilla and Aquila are left behind. And in verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fevered in spirit, he spoke and taught the things concerning Jesus. 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished, and when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. There's all this story wrapped up in to get to Ephesians. Context matters. And so you see that Paul didn't necessarily start the church in Ephesus. As he landed there, Priscilla and Aquila stayed there. Apollos comes in, and they train him up because he only knows one part of the story. And the church begins to thrive. The church begins to grow. You read the very next chapter of 19. Paul is in Ephesus, and he speaks to them, and he stays there for a time. There's riots that ensure. And after that experience, the church is there. It's developed. Paul leaves because he's got other churches to plant other churches to connect to. There's no email. There's no fast internet. There's no airplanes or buses. It's you're walking by foot or by mule. Maybe you're on a boat, which wasn't the safest place in how to travel, but that's an ax. And later on, he writes this letter to the Ephesians to encourage them. He's already been there. They've heard his story. Here is the guy, Saul, formerly, who is now Paul, who has changed his life in a 360 degrees. Pretty much 180 has gone from killing and persecuting to Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, key there, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Saints just means Christians, those who believe. It's not some hierarchy. It's not some greater. Saints means you and me who believe. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. It's this intro to who he is. I'm an apostle. Carries weight. I say I'm a pastor, people say, oh, you're, you're one of those, okay, and it kind of designates, which is why I wait the longer I can to say I'm a pastor, that's what I do. People assume certain things by it, same as they would have assumed Paul, an apostle, but they would have known Paul. Some of them would have been very familiar when he had stopped, they would remember Priscilla and Aquila, they would have remembered Apollos, they would have remembered him coming back and discipling them. And so Paul then starts this huge long sentence, which is not in English, but from verse three to 14 is one sentence. As Pastor Greg spoke a few months ago, he talked about that, that in the Koine Greek, sometimes they were just really long sentences. But in the English, they put periods to help us kind of comprehend what is being said and what Paul is trying to communicate, which is the question that I have is God did what? And that's what Paul is going to answer as he's writing back to this church that he loves and cares for. It's people that he spent very little time with in our scheme of time. And that's sometimes where in the West we lose sight of the time concept, that if we know someone's only going to be around for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe a year or two, if we know that, then we tend to hesitate really truly getting to know them and really opening ourselves up. Why? Because you have to say goodbye, and goodbyes hurt. And so when we get to know people, we sometimes are put up walls and we're defensive, and it's going to take you time to get in. In central New York, where I lived the past 12 years, I, people would always say when they moved in, man, these people are a really stubborn bunch. They're really hard to get to know. And I'm like, yeah, because you're not from here. If you're not from here, they don't trust you because you haven't been there. You haven't been over time. They start to soften. It's the same in Carroll County, I'm finding. If you're not from here, why would I trust you? You don't know this place. You don't know me. You don't know who's married to who. And they're really, oh my goodness, everyone. They just like, I told you, Cortland's just like everywhere else. I'm like, yeah, I'm finding that out, dear. Thank you. But if we don't have the time, then we sometimes don't think it's worth it to invest, to talk to people, to really get to know them, to maybe where they're hurting. 
because we have to say goodbye and we don't know if we'll ever see them again and we don't get maybe anything out of it as we would see it. And so Paul writes this letter, and when he writes this letter, he's always to the churches. You just read his heart on display of that as his heart went from Saul one way to God getting a hold of it and changing who he is and everything about him. You just see a deep love for who God is, what he has done, and his desire to share that to the churches and to let them know who they are in Christ, but also that they would be equipped and they would be empowered to believe that because he had so radically been changed by the truth and what Jesus had done. And so it rides this way that God has chosen to adopt us. That's that first point on you if you're taking notes. It said in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And if you pause there, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It explains this. He goes, let me tell you, church, just a little bit about who you are. Let me tell you what God has done for you. He's given us Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In, in essence, he's saying right there, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you're not some mistake. This is the what God has done for us. God chose, he knew you before the foundation of the world. If God is omnipotent, knows all things, if he's omnipresent, he's aware of everything. If God is outside of time, which that really makes your head hurt when you think about that, he has seen all things, he knows all things. From nothing, he created something. He's always been, has always existed, and he, before the foundations of the world existed, he has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless. You're not some mistake. You're not some blob of cells put together. You read Psalm 139, it says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That the, the hairs on our head, we can't count and God knows them. Our eye color, our personalities, our brain, everything about us is not coincidence or happenstance. It's divinely orchestrated and put into place exactly as God has chosen to do. And God has chosen a people to be holy and blameless which then begs the question, well, did he know about evil and Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, yeah, he's God. So yes, he did. And it's this dichotomy and this weird as we try to put God in a box to fully comprehend. And the reality is you can't fully comprehend all of it. That's the faith element. But it says, and Paul is very clear, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. And if we're going to be holy and blameless before him and sin has entered the world, then there's, a, there's something missing. There's a peace that we haven't quite comprehended. And he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. But what God has done is he's chosen to adopt us. And that fancy word predestination causes a lot of theological headaches, heartburn debates. And you can talk to me in private and we can go into really nitty gritty details of that stuff. The concept is that God picks and God chooses that's the nuts and bolts gist of it. And if he is God, his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, as Isaiah says, which means he sees all, he knows every decision and how it's gonna play out, how it's gonna affect the eight billion plus people on the planet for every single little decision and thought process you do. And every time everyone prays, which there's eight billion people, and if there's two billion truly Christians that are praying all at the same time, how does he sift through two billion different prayer requests? Think about that. That's what Greg Newman was talking How does he hear all of that? I'm like, I don't know, he's God. And he pieces it apart, and he picks, and he chooses. 
but he has predestined us. But here's the thing. So he picks and he chooses. He predestined us for adoption, which is the key word there, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purposes of his will. His ways are higher. But he predestined, he chose to adopt. Some of you are adopted. Some of you have adopted children. You choose in adoption. Justification, which is a huge fancy word that means made right before God, Sometimes that's where Christians camp on, which is true. It's our greatest spiritual need is to be justified, to be made right before God. There's a sin issue. There's a sin problem in the world. And so if we're going to be adopted, then there's a cost that there's a penalty that has to be paid for, right? Because the sin, the world, if we're to be holy and blameless, and you and I both know every one of your, you know your secrets, I know my secrets, you know the words you've said, the stuff you're ashamed of and guilt-ridden, all the sin in you, If we're to be holy and blameless, how is that going to be at all possible through us? And if God has chosen us to be adopted, then there's the court aspect. There's the cost and penalty aspect that has to go into play. And so justification, yes, is the primary blessing you and I receive when we come to know Jesus. Absolutely. We're at odds with God and we're made right with God through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Packer writes this in his book, Knowing God. He writes, justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God, the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. Meaning you could be justified before God and have no close relationship, no friendship with him, but you are now holy and blameless, okay? But contrast this now with adoption, Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater So God has chosen to adopt us, and Paul is saying, I, an apostle of God, you people know my story. You know where I've come from. You know what I've been through and what I have done, my sin. Blessed be God the Father. Let me remind you what he has done for us, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless, in love he predestined. He chose us for adoption to bring into his family as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and will, to praise of his glorious grace with whom he has blessed us and his beloved. He's chosen us to be adopted in. Highest blessing. Now the question is, how did God, how did God do it? And God adopts us through redemption because Paul answers that, that he's chosen us, he's predestined us to be heirs, sons and daughters of the Most High. In him we have redemption. We've been made right through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. How did God, how we did it? How do we get adopted? How are we having have that opportunity to be adopted into God's family? Well, it's through Jesus. It's through his blood on the cross. You go back to Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2, you get a nitty-gritty inside scoop, and you see man's created in his image and his likeness, male and female. And then you get to the point where Eve sins, Genesis 3. We didn't last very long. Genesis 3, sin comes in. God says, don't eat from a certain tree. The snake whispers in in Eve's ear. Did God really say that? 
And she says, well, if I eat it, and he goes, well, yeah, but God just doesn't, he's going to be like him if you eat it. You know the difference between good and evil. So she takes the fruit and she eats it. And we want to blame Eve for that. But guys, what does it say the very next voice? So she turns and she gives some to Adam. So where was Adam? Oh, I'm going to watch this play out. I'm just going to be quiet through this. I'm not going to open my mouth. They both sin. They both realize the difference between good and evil. God wasn't holding out. He said, do you trust me? So God said, because of that sin, there's now separation between you and between me. And he shows grace by not killing them instantly and just starting over. Don't ask me why he didn't do that. I don't know. But his master plan went into motion at that point in history and in time that he knew ahead what it would cost him to choose us. And then he said, okay, he kicked them out of the garden. Sin comes in. And at that point in time, sin probably didn't quite look like it does today. It wasn't quite as twisted on the culture, on the people, but it gets worse and worse. And one degree off, slowly and surely over a long period of time, it gets worse and worse. And Paul says, look, in him we have redemption through the blood. Life is in the blood. And God said, if you eat from the tree, you will die. God isn't God unless he follows through with what he has said. So a death is required. And so God chooses to adopt us How does he adopt us to redemption? What does that redemption look like? It cost the life of his son, Jesus. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't just God flicked his finger and said, good. No, it cost God something to choose us, to adopt us. And it's only through the blood of Jesus. And because of that, We have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Not mine, not yours, not Paul's. But God's grace, grace is that beautiful term. Mercy says, okay, here's the punishment. We're not going to entitle you to the punishment. Grace goes one step further, says that's the punishment, death. But not only are you not going to die, but now I'm going to make you an heir. I'm going to give you something on top of that, which you don't deserve. The acronym, some of you are familiar with, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so Paul is saying, remind, let me remind you, church, who you are, that God has chosen to adopt us. He has picked and he has chosen. He adopts us through the redemption, through the blood of Jesus Christ, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, you and me, the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That God adopts us through this redemption, through the blood of Jesus, that's the cost. So Packer takes this whole adoption process one step further and he writes this, In the ancient world, adoption was a practice ordinarily confined to the childless well-to-do. Its subjects, as we have said earlier, were not normally infants, as in today, but they were young adults who had shown themselves fit and able to carry on a family name in a worthy way. In this case, however, God adopts us out of free love, not because our character and records show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us are not sinners as he loves and exalts Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild, and yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. Adoption by its very nature is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or a daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you're bound to. And similarly, God adopts us because he chose to. 
He had no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins except punish us as we deserve, but he loved us, so he redeemed us. He forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our Abba, our Father. And it's that beautiful thing that God adopts us through this redemption. The what's in it for me is that the grace is bestowed upon me. Grace, unmerited favor. Grace, giving to me. And there's a list of four things that this entails. And this is the last part of the chapter one. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God bestows his grace upon it. The what's in it for me is this part. It says, we get the forgiveness of sins. We have a relationship restored with him. A guarantee is given to us and our inheritance is secure. The guarantee is that Holy Spirit, not that. It is who it is a person, the Holy Spirit. At the moment you come to know Christ, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who begins to change you from the inside out. Just as Saul slowly changed from the inside out, his, it seems kind of fast, but if you look at the history and really realize it was multiple years that over a period of time, his name goes from Saul, which is kind of a mud name over a long period of time, changes it to Paul because everyone associated Saul with this murderer, with this person who went after Christians. He said, that's no longer me. And so when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, there is now, you are a new creation in Christ. He's saying, I've seen it. I've experienced it. And when he's talking to the church in Ephesus and he's reminding them, this is who you are. You are chosen and adopted. You're adopted through redemption. That God has bestowed his grace upon you and me whom believe. And we have a guarantee that this is not fake or false, but it is truth. And that guarantee is the Holy Spirit who is inside of you, who slowly molds us and shapes us. It begins to change you, your word choice, your thought life, your actions, that's why a few weeks ago I said the greatest and hardest place to do ministry really is in your own backyard, your own home, because people know you. They know what you've done. But when they see the change, and it's not just superficial change, it's not just social media, stained glass masquerade looks like the change, but when they see it and they experience it, they say, well, something's different. And I don't understand it. I don't quite get it. And Paul says, look, let me remind you, church. Let me tell you what has been done for you to encourage you. And so really, if you break down this part that we've just kind of went through, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. In him you also, when you heard, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's kind of three big back to back to back. We've been redeemed. We've got an inheritance we have a guarantee of that inheritance with the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, church, let me remind you who you are, that you were adopted as a son and daughter of the Most High God, that this is done through Jesus Christ. And so then Paul goes where I love it. What do we do with it? What do we do with our faith then? If that's who we are, that's great. What do we do with it? And the truth of the matter is, what we do with it is work it out. That's the hard part, church. That's the hard part of saying, okay, yeah, I agree with that, Nick. That's awesome. Okay, then do something. You know, hear me say that probably till I die and go to heaven. Do something with your faith. Great you agree with that. Great you understand that and it resonates. What are you doing with it? 
And Paul says that. He kind of goes into great detail in the very next few verses. In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because of what I've just said, because of this is who you are and what God has done for us, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. I've heard of you, Ephesus. He says, And I have a faith in Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul writing this, Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom. He's praying this blessing over the church. And this is Paul's heart for all of his churches, but he's writing this verbatim to the church in Ephesus. May he give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you have called. He's basically challenged them to do something with, may I give you the spirit of wisdom to know how to live and act in the world, that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to truly comprehend Do you realize the hope that's in you? Do you realize the power at work in you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, you and me, who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead? He's basically saying, I hope you will work out your faith, church. I hope you will understand and comprehend the width and the breadth, all of these things. And he gets to another prayer later in Ephesians about this even further of just kind of emphasizing the point, do something with your faith. And in Philippians, he writes this in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, which is applicable to the church in Ephesus, even to us today, He goes, in my presence you obeyed, in my presence you understood. So now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We've been predestined for good works and good things, to be holy and blameless. But it also is not all on God. That Yes, God saves us. We're guaranteed with the Holy Spirit. Now it's our part. We play a part in this to work out that faith within us, to understand, to try to our greatest in understanding of the wisdom and the hope. And the more you understand it, the more rich of what Jesus has done for us starts to pour into your life. The more it just starts to ooze out of every fiber of your being of realizing who doesn't know Jesus. Spurgeon, the great preacher of old, would go through and he said, I don't know who God predestined. He goes, yes, that's a theology. Yes, that's truth. He goes, if I knew that God marked him a certain way with a tail of some sort, he goes, I'd be flipping up shirts everywhere I went to find the tails and tell them about Jesus. He goes, but I don't know who they are. So I tell everybody and anybody about Jesus because I don't know who God has chosen. But I want to make it a point that everyone should hear and that I should go after them. People are people. People are messy. Like I mentioned in the first part, sometimes we think for two weeks, three weeks, a month, a year or two, and then they're going to be gone. It's not worth our time to invest. The reality is it's the exact opposite. You pour into them. You invest everything you have into them all in for however long that season is. It's three months, great. It's two weeks, awesome. It's a year, great. We had foreign exchange students up in New York at the local college, and they would come to know Christ as they studied at SUNY Court. Then they go back to China. It's like, well, I'm not going to see them ever again. The church isn't going to see them. But the influence and the impact of someone sharing the gospel with them, for them to go back home and then share the gospel, and the hope one day in heaven I do get to see them. There's people in Israel who influenced and invested in me for three months, not really two and a half months. And because of their investment, I am who I am today. And they could have said, Nick, you're not worth our time. We're going to have to say goodbye. You're in the States. I'm in Germany. I'm in England. What's the point? The point is, we've been adopted into God's family 
that he gives us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the hope to which we are called, the inheritance, and a deep-seated love for people around us. Because God loved us so much, he sent his one and only son to die for us. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the point of to work out our salvation. And it's all because of the power of Christ when God raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and the power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Beautiful passage, which is the body, the fullness of him. We get to be the hands and feet. Jesus is the head. We're the bride. What did Jesus do for the bride? He died for the bride. So we get to imitate and model to the world the fullness of him. And that's the challenge. And that's the part you and I will fail at probably more times than we can count. But we keep going. And we keep loving on people. And we keep giving them the benefit of the doubt. And we, yes, we use discernment. Yes, we use wisdom. When we find a Saul and we're like, yeah, you gotta be discernful. But as people walk through the doors, they feel like they can come and be loved and cared for at New Hope. When people come here, do they feel like they could belong and not have to behave a certain way? Could they just be? And don't stay as you are, come as you are. But because of what they experience, because of how they're interacted with people, that they change, that Saul's become Paul's. Who knows who the next Billy Graham, who might walk through doors, maybe not, but who someone will go in the world and change lives. You don't know the ripple effect. You don't know the influence you have when you share, when you just live it out and you just say, God, I don't have the words, I don't have the answers, but I'm, I'm willing. And let God work in you. That which you've already been equipped for. You have the words. You have the right way. You just gotta know who are you in Christ. You are the son of the most high. You're beloved. And you've been given a spirit of power and authority and you've been equipped. And we'll grow that.